Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're a regular listener, thanks again for your support, and please do help spread the word about the podcast and feel free to send me ideas for future episodes. So our guest today is Chris O'Meara, who is currently a lecturer in law at Exeter University Law School and who does work in both USAD Bellum and international humanitarian law. You can find a link to his full profile and links to his publications discussed in this episode on our webpage at jibjabpodcast.com. Chris has recently published a new book called Necessity and Proportionality and the Right of Self-Defense in International Law, which is the subject of our conversation here. As Chris explains in our discussion, the book makes the case that the principles of necessity and proportionality are not sufficiently, and not sufficiently rigorously, developed in international law scholarship. And the book does indeed engage in a very detailed, methodical, and rigorous study of the scope and operation of these principles, suggesting a new taxonomy of understanding the distinct elements of the principle of necessity, and a more precise way of understanding the relationship between necessity and proportionality. In our conversation, we try to unpack the more important aspects of this study and delve into some of the areas of Chris's analysis that are both novel and for some may be controversial. These include how precisely and to what extent necessity operates as a limiting principle, how imminence and immediacy relate to the principle of necessity, how to understand the substance and operation of the principle of proportionality, whether and how the doctrine of self-defense is modified for use of force against non-state actors, whether and why the justifications of unlawful uses of force by some prominent states should be considered at all in discussions of state practice, and whether and how one should interpret the conduct of a minority of strong states on the one hand and the apparent silence of the rest of the world on the other in the context of inferring some emerging customary international law. It's really a fascinating discussion about a book that everyone will want to read. And so with that, let's get to the conversation. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you for having me, Craig. It's a pleasure to be on. Big fan. Thank you. And you know, as you know, then, before we dive into the substance, I'm asking all of my guests to say a few words about themselves, something that perhaps your colleagues don't know about you, something that'll give us a little insight into the non-academic Chris. Yes. Well, I was going to talk about my, perhaps my big change from being a, a banking and finance lawyer back in the day to being an, an academic sort of war law or Yellow lawyer, but I guess that that's probably not so interesting. So maybe something my colleagues don't know about me is that in addition to having written a book that we're going to chat about on international law and the USAD Bellum, I am also a little bit of a, a fantasy novel nerd. So I've actually written a fantasy novel, which wow. many, a lot of people do not know. It's not actually, I've been trying to get it published. I had to put it on the back burner a little bit when I was finishing my PhD and doing the book, but it's something I'd definitely like to pick up again one day and try and get on the bookshelves. Wow, that is interesting and, and, and humbling that you can find time to write novels in the margins of writing books like we're going to talk about today. Thank you. Well, as I did have to park it, so whether or not I'll be able to pick it up again one day, we'll see. But cross fingers. Well, you know, if, if and when it gets published, we'll have to get a link on the website. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. So we are here indeed to talk about your very substantial book, Necessity and Proportionality. And as always is the case with discussions on the podcast about books, it's, it's really very difficult to, to do the book justice and 
find sort of the entry point to to get at all of the, the complexities and the nuance that, that are provided in the book. But I thought maybe just to start, you make the assertion early in the book that there's a need for a book on uh, necessity and proportionality and precisely because in your view, there hasn't been enough scholarly attention and, and rigorous attention to the issues of necessity and proportionality uh, in the doctrine of self-defense. And this may strike some people as, as a little strange because there is, of course, a wealth of scholarship on use at bellum, on self-defense. And so maybe we could begin just by having you tell us a little bit about why it is that you decided that there was this need for a book on necessity and proportionality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess in terms of the history, the book, the monograph began as my doctoral thesis, which I started back in 2014. And at the time, I was very much interested in the US ad bellum. I was doing a lot of background reading and, and obviously spent a lot of time focusing on scholarship relating to the armed attack, which is perhaps where most of the, or a lot of the, the US ad bellum scholarship focus has been, understandably so, given the drafting of the UN Charter, uh, the focus on armed attack by the ICJ, but also coming time and time again to references to necessity and proportionality, but in a, in a rather limited way, I would say. So often references to these important uh, requirements being essential, foundational to the right of self-defense, but many notes sort of commenting on the lack of academic examination of these requirements, their indeterminate nature, the fact that they required further analysis. And these sorts of comments sort of made me read more and more. And actually I saw this, this sort of scope really to bring a bit more detail. So often when necessity and proportionality are discussed elsewhere, Either they're done in quite a, a high sort of overview nature, talking about their sort of general nature and purpose, often talking about them interchangeably. And to the extent there have been more sort of deep dive examinations, perhaps they're a little bit out of date or at least didn't provide sort of an analytical framework. So perhaps the, the most well-known example is Judith Garman's book back in 2004, which is often cited as a great contribution, but obviously in the book, it's only one chapter on self-defense. And the book was written in 2004. So I thought there's a lot more scope really to provide more on the scope and content of necessity and proportionality, but also to really drill down into providing what I call a sort of analytical framework of it, which I'm happy to, to talk more about. So I sort of saw this, uh, this opening, if you like, which I hopefully the book goes some way to fill. Right. Well, we are certainly going to dig into that analytical framework and, and maybe we can just begin with sort of an overview of your argument on the nature and scope of necessity and proportionality and the relationship between them. And perhaps with an emphasis on your claim that necessity and proportionality, while distinct, operate together on an ongoing basis to limit the actions of the defending state, which is in contrast to scholars like Dinstein, who seem to suggest that, you know, at, at a certain point, the defending state is no longer constrained by necessity and proportionality once it's in all out war. Yeah. So I, in the book, I, I treat necessity and proportionality, as you say, as distinct concepts. And that's certainly the way in which the ICJ more or less has treated the two concepts, but also I say it's very important to treat them sequentially. So what I'm trying to do here is to say there's an order of application or thinking about these two requirements, but also we need to distinguish between them and avoid this conflation whereby we have this catch-all description, if you like, of illegality, i.e. that a use of force or an action in purported self-defense is unnecessary and disproportionate or unnecessary or disproportionate. I really try to confront that and say, look, we need to break it down. These are distinct requirements in the US ad bellum. They have particular jobs and we need to look at them in a particular order. So we start with necessity. 
which I break down further into these two, if you like, novel ideas of what I call general and specific necessity. So you look at general necessity first, then specific necessity, then proportionality in that order. Uh, and those sort of, if you like, three separate requirements, as you say, I argue, apply during the entire course of an armed conflict prompted by self-defense. It's not just a threshold question that we have to look at. These are cons these are requirements that constantly need to be appraised and monitored throughout a conflict prompted by an act of self-defense. So yes, I very much reject Einstein's idea of this war of self-defense in response to an armed attack of a critical character, whereby effectively you, you look at necessity and proportionality at the outset, uh, and then they have no further application and it's effectively handing over to IHL or laws of armed conflict to, to govern the ongoing armed conflict. So I, I do reject that. Right. Well, then let's, let's dive into and unpack necessity or your analysis of necessity. And as you say, you propose this new taxonomy where you have a general necessity and a specific necessity, and there's a relationship between these two concepts. So perhaps we can sort of unpack that. Yeah, absolutely. So what I essentially argue is when um, scholars and courts are typically thinking about necessity, they're typically looking at two separate questions. So the first is whether any defensive force is required at all in the circumstances, or are there peaceful alternatives to resolving the situation? So that tends to be question one. And the second question is, well, if, if there is a necessity to use self-defense, where must that force be directed in order that a defensive purpose is met? and nothing more. So just to sort of break that down further, so we start obviously with the armed attack, which is the trigger for the right of self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter. The first sort of gateway question for necessity, as I say, is what I call general necessity. So this is how most people would understand necessity. So this is to ask whether or not defensive force is required by a state in the circumstances. Um, so it's an immediate limitation on the availability of a state's right of self-defense. So it conditions the right once we have got through the armed attack tr trigger. So this is the, really the sort of no choice of means description that we find in the Caroline formula, in the, in the Webster formula. Uh, um, the, the, the question of whether states have other options available to them. I'm happy to talk more about the detail, but if we surpass that initial threshold question on necessity, the second question is, well, where does that generally necessary defensive force need to be directed such that the purposes of self-defense are met? So this is what I call specific necessity. And what that really does is focus on the nature of the target of defensive force. So... What I argue is that we see this distinction in the scholarship, we see it in the jurisprudence, and we see it in state practice, even if it's not described in that way. And I'm passing this sort of general ideas, and as I say, you look at general necessity first, followed by the specific necessity, then you move on to proportionality, which it looks at the overall outcomes of those, or those actions of self-defense, which, which surpass the specific necessity threshold. So proportionality is looking at the overall defensive picture, and whether the acts of self-defense are excessive to use sort of Webster's terms from the Caroline incident. Okay. So sticking with necessity for a moment, although when we start talking about or unpacking the concept of specific necessity, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the relationship it bears with proportionality and the confusion that, that people may have between what you are calling specific necessity and proportionality. But 
But let's stick for a moment with this relationship between general necessity and specific necessity and why it is precisely that you think it's important to break necessity out into these two elements and how you see them playing distinct and, and different roles in the analysis of whether the right of self-defense is justifiable. Yeah, but I guess what I'm looking for here is is really to bring some analytical clarity and what I call sort of tools, if you like, for um, states um, in terms of policy making, decision making, but also articulating their justifications and for how third parties reviewers thereby sort of review defensive action. So the first question is always going to be: in the particular circumstances, was force needed at all? Was there something else the state could have done to avoid having recourse to, to defensive force or purported defensive force in, in those circumstances? And if you don't pass that sort of initial threshold, that initial question, then there is really no need to then move on from that. Any force used where general necessity is not satisfied is simply an unlawful use of force. So, for example, it doesn't make sense thereby to, to refer or to consider proportionality or specific necessity because any force is simply unlawful. So that is the sort of initial threshold question. As I say, it operates as the, the first gateway that needs to be sort of justified or thought about or passed before you then think about issues of targeting, before you then think about how far your defensive response may go in order to achieve a defensive purpose. Um, and I guess the one thing I would say there is when we're thinking about general necessity, I think the state practice reveals that you know, states are certainly not required to consider or even exhaust all peaceful alternatives to force. And there'll be particular factors which, which speak to whether or not force was the only reasonable option in the circumstances. So principally temporal considerations, whether the armed attack is either ongoing or potentially imminent, if we accept some form of anticipatory self-defense or, or completed, whether the armed attack is over. The other um, sort of big factor that will play on the sort of general necessity question is who or what has carried out the armed attack. So for example, the idea of general necessity plays a different role when we're thinking about armed attacks by non-state actors than, than we do in the interstate context. Again, I make a distinction between general necessity and these two different contexts. Okay, so we're going to come back to quite a few of those different aspects that you just mentioned. But let's but just sticking with this distinction between general necessity and specific necessity. As I understand it, then the specific necessity is operating again as a, as a limiting factor where you're going to yeah. assess whether the targets that were selected were in fact necessary and consistent with the defensive purpose. And, and we'll come back to that in more detail in a minute, but just sticking with this relationship, and I'm wondering, you're suggesting almost that it's sequential, that in the assessment, the initial assessment of the state that is undertaking, exercising the right of self-defense, that their first question is, is the use of force uh, the only option available to us, reasonable option available to us to prevent imminent or ongoing armed attacks? And then secondly, what is the nature of the targets that we, we should be striking? And, and so there's this sequential aspect to the reasoning and to the exposed assessment of the reasonableness of that reasoning. But when you think about it, I mean, how can you really even determine if the use of force was reasonable or was the only alternative without thinking about what targets one might strike, right? It, 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 when you start to think it through, one gets the feeling that they almost have to be considered simultaneously, right? That you can't really assess whether force is necessary 
to prevent imminent or ongoing attacks without thinking about well, what is it we're actually going to use force against? And is that going to be effective in, in preventing the ongoing attack? Yeah, no, I mean, I take your point, but I think you're not in into the territory of target selection. If there is another option available to you to resolve the situation. So for example, why are you thinking about targeting if you can negotiate, if there's a diplomatic resolution, or why are you thinking about targeting if there's an option to take the matter to the UN Security Council and the UN Security Council can then act to resolve the situation, all of which would forestall or, or take away any general necessity of self-defense. You're only in specific necessity territory if the answer is, well, there is no other alternative un under the circumstances. Now, those two, they are essentially sequential, but those two decisions might be very, very close in time. So, for example, if you're thinking about an ongoing armed attack, my argument is general necessity is established per se. So automatically established and you go straight into target selection, thinking about specific necessity. So those two points of decision-making may occur very quickly, but they are essentially sequentially because if you don't get past through the first gate, the general necessity gate, you cannot, you should not be thinking about specific necessity because any force would therefore be unlawful by definition. Okay. Well, then let's stick with the general necessity for a moment because there, as you alluded to a moment ago, I think you, you make some assertions or reach some conclusions in the discussion of general necessity that I think are controversial. So for example, you reject the gap between armed attack and use of force and, and sort of the adoption of, of gravity and scale and effects for armed attack as the trigger. And also, as you just alluded to, you talk about the reasonableness of the, the use of force and in your view, there's a, not a requirement that the defending state prove or demonstrate or establish that the use of force was the only alternative. And I think both of those require some discussion and, and maybe controversial in the eyes of some. So let's sort of take those in sequence. So why the rejection of the gap between armed attack and use of force that the ICJ and, and most of the rest of the world other than the United States seems to, to have adopted? Yeah, well, I think actually in the book, I couch in slightly more nuanced terms. So I, I do I do say <laughs> that there may be a gravity threshold out there. And of course, we all know that Nicaragua has recognized it. So the need to distinguish between less grave and most grave uses of force, which, you know, it's there in the jurisprudence. And as you say, there is certainly state practice out there that alludes to it. I'm not sure there is much state practice out there nowadays, maybe, that alludes to it. But I accept that it's in the literature, it's in the state practice, and it's certainly in Nicaragua. A couple of points I would say to that, I think number one, to the extent there is a gravity threshold, it's probably not very high. And the court itself has accepted that in oil platforms with the idea that the, sing, you know, the mining of a, a military vessel by a single mine might be sufficient. And other scholars have, have mentioned that the gravity threshold might be pretty low. I think where my problem comes and where I do reject it as a sort of normative proposition, i.e. we should not have it, is sort of twofold. The, the first element of that, I go into some detail actually in a separate article, so not in the book, although I do sort of reference the article in the book. And this is the idea is if, if we accept a gravity threshold, what does that mean in practice? If you think about it from the perspective of the defending state and in particular its military personnel, because what we're effectively saying to states is if you are attacked by low level uses of force, you must respond without using force, right? That's the sort of the end result of, of accepting 
the gravity threshold. So in my other article, which I, which I published in 2017 in the journal on the use of force, international law looks at the relationship between national unit and personal self-defense. So it's looking at self-defense from the state level, which is how the court tends to look at it, which is how a lot of the scholarship tends to look at it. But I say, well, there's a disconnect between self-defense or what's called national self-defense or state self-defense and how military personnel, either units or individual military personnel, can defend themselves on the ground, if you like. And if we're thinking about it from the perspective of the individual or unit, they undeniably have the right of self-defense, either to protect themselves or their unit or potentially property. And under certain laws, particularly from the United States, individual military commanders will have the obligation to exercise their right of unit self-defense to protect themselves. So a couple of things flow from that analysis. If we accept that all individual military personnel and their units have a right to defend themselves against unlawful armed attacks, they, the requirement on that, or sorry, the limitations on that right do not correspond to the state level. So there's a disconnect between the macro and the micro level. So individuals and units can protect themselves against unlawful uses of force, regardless of gravity, regardless of whether they're non-state actors or state actors. And the point being there is that these individual military personnel are organs of the state, right? They are the state for intents and purposes from the position of state, the laws of state responsibility. So it leads you to a bizarre situation whereby in a low level of use of force that the ICJ refers to potentially as a mere frontier incident, you have a situation where individual um, military personnel are entitled to defend themselves if they're subject to an unlawful use of force. And in so doing, if they factually do that, the state is in fact defending itself, right? Because they are organs of the state and their actions are attributed to the state. But in those circumstances that I've described, state self-defense or national self-defense may not be engaged because of the threshold, because it doesn't reach the threshold. So you have this dis disconnect. But isn't, isn't it possible that that disconnect in part reflects that the use ad vellum hasn't been triggered? That, that, that use of force at the unit level, which is governed by IHL, of course, is not actually undertaken under the auspices or under the authority of Article 51, USAD Bellman itself has not yet been triggered, at least if you accept the ICJ's conceptualization of armed attack as having requiring a certain level of gravity and scale and effect before the right of self-defense itself is triggered. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure that we can carve out this right of unit or individual self-defense from the USAD Bellum because military personnel are the states. Any attack on military personnel will be an attack on the state. And if the military personnel respond, the state is responding. So if you impose the Nicaragua threshold onto that factual situation, as I've described it, what you're effectively saying is for the, for the individuals on the ground, you cannot defend yourself until this unspecified threshold is surpassed. Of course, that's nonsensical because the rules of engagement that these individuals have will certainly enable, if not require them to defend themselves in those circumstances. And certainly from a human rights law perspective, the state, there might be an obligation on the state to protect individuals in those circumstances. So I don't think these bodies of law are working as they should. And I think the policy issue here 
with the gravity threshold is completely understandable. We're trying to prevent escalation here, small scale uses of force from escalating into large scale uses of force. But I, what I argue is that um, imposing a threshold on the armed attack trigger is the wrong tool to do the job. Uh, rather, it's better to think of necessity and proportionality as responding to that policy concern of escalation. Both of those two things can train and restrain a use of force to make sure it doesn't explode into something you know, big and uncalled for, which I think is where the policy issue is, is implicated. Okay, so so that's really fascinating. And, and we'll, we'll post a link to your article on gravity on Thank the website you. as well. And we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. But let's just assume, okay, so you're, you're suggesting that rather than relying on armed attack and establishing some gravity threshold in armed attack or triggering the right of self-defense, we should rely on general necessity as the limiting principle and element. not the trigger, not the trigger. I would say, obviously we have armed attack as the trigger, right? Um, armed attack is the trigger. And then general yeah. necessity is where you should be limiting or, or looking at the gravity question and, and relying on the, the limiting nature of general necessity to yeah. deal with variations in the gravity of, of the armed attack itself. But then surely intention with that is you then go on to say, but under general necessity, the state doesn't actually have to demonstrate that there are no alternatives, that we can accept that. It's just reasonable for it to use force in the circumstances, regardless of whether there might have been some other alternatives. And surely that just undermines and erodes the, the argument that general necessity is this great limiting principle, because that weakens the principle substantially. And in thinking about that as well, I was struck in this part of the chapter that you rely quite heavily, or one might argue quite heavily on the American, Australian, English positions, most recently in the post sort of 9-11 world, on their interpretations of the doctrine of self-defense, particularly in the context of the unwilling and unable doctrine come to later. But isn't there an argument to be made that, that this conclusion that you make about general necessity and the non-necessity of, of the use of force being the only alternative is reflective of really a small handful of countries that have just been loudest in asserting you know, a doctrine that is weakening the doctrine of self-defense more generally? Uh, yes, a couple of points there. I think in, in terms of proving, what I say in the book is that um, general necessity is clearly an accepted presumption among states, i.e. there's the... There is an assumption that force, that defensive force is a measure of last resort. There is an assumption that states will have considered and looked at alternatives. But it's very difficult to find examples of state practice where there has, is a clear obligation or, or sufficiency of state practice to say that there's an obligation on states to prove that they have pursued peaceful alternatives. And what I mean by that as I said, we've got this general presumption, but what that actually means in practice is, is unclear from state practice. So what we tend to find that, of course, states both in justifying recourse to, to force, but also other states in reviewing those justifications will often talk about peaceful alternatives. But in reality, what tends to happen is that other factors will determine whether self-defense claims are accepted or not, i.e. whether necessity is established or not. And the sort of two key factors that I say in the book are really whether states have time to consider an alternative. So it's the timing of the armed attack issue bears heavily on general necessity. 
i.e. is the armed attack ongoing? Is it completed? Is it potentially imminent? Uh, and the other factor that's really obvious in the state practice I've seen is the nature of the attacker. The states do not tend to regard themselves as an obligation to look at peaceful alternatives in situations where the author of the armed attack is a non-state actor, and particularly in the context of terrorism. You don't see references to the need to negotiate with Daesh or Al-Qaeda. Obviously, the issue there is the host state, which probably we'll come on to. So yes, the peaceful transit is super important, but there is no... There's a clear obligation that states have to prove their recourse to self-defense because alternatives were not available. And on your point about reliance on particular states, the problem with the USAD bellum is obviously that we are stuck with incidents of self-defense where militarily powerful states use force and other states respond. So what I try and do in the book uh, throughout the book, not just about general necessity, but generally is refer to those incidents of state practice that are sort of most helpful or elucidating in terms of the particular principles and issues at stake. And most of those incidents will, of course, be incidents where militarily powerful states have acted. But what I really try to do in the book is to make sure I canvas as much as possible responses to those incidents. So yes, we might be dealing with Examples where the US or UK or Israel or whatever, Turkey may have used force, but I have tried as much as possible to be fair in reviewing the responses to those incidents and to note where there is not much state practice, that state practice is limited. And I do say that the state practice of a small number of militarily powerful states is not sufficient to to, create custom. But nevertheless, we must engage with state practice as we find it. We might not like the outcome of that analysis, but we can't ignore it. So we'll, we'll come back to the last point about the, the various sort of Western states, because uh, it comes up again in the discussion of imminence, which we're going to turn to in a second. But, oh. but I'm still troubled by the idea that states, and you put it now that states aren't required to prove, but I, I thought in the, in, in the chapter, it was a bit, you know, you were lowering the threshold a bit more than that and saying that, that just because there has not been a particular case in which responding states or bystander states have pointed to the, the presence of peaceful alternatives and that that was the, the determinative factor in finding that a use of force in self-defense was not justified. That we should thereby conclude that the availability of alternatives is not going to be determinative. Because surely if we, if we take the presumption, I mean, if we take seriously the presumption that it should be a last resort and that necessity means by definition that there are not other alternatives, then to back away from that and say, but we're going to give people some benefit of the doubt and just simply determine whether it was reasonable in the circumstances to use force, regardless of whether there were some other alternatives available seems to just dilute the idea of necessity to the point where it's not going to play the limiting role that that you envision for it. And I don't disagree with anything you've just said, Craig, but again, this is not a position I am taking and making. What I'm what I'm trying to do is to, as I say, review state practice and draw conclusions. And my so this is the sort of legally descriptive point. So what the law is and what it should be can be very, very different. And we might not be happy with the outcome, but the way I read state practice is that it essentially does boil down to a reasonable reasonableness test. And both these requirements, both necessity and proportionality, are highly contextually specific and depend on the various factors at play. So for example, in incidences 
of preemptive or anticipatory self-defense, issues of peaceful alternatives might come up, and they certainly do come up in the UN Security Council, among states, something of maybe the Syrac incident is, is, a, is an obvious example here, where the issue of peaceful alternatives certainly featured in state denunciations of Israel's attack on the Syrac nuclear facility in Iraq. But that was within a context where a whole bunch of other factors probably played a more important role in states determining that that particular use of force was unlawful. And those factors are the ones which speak to the, the, the particular context. So in, the idea of whether there is a, a right of self-defense against you know, future armed attacks, whether we call them imminent or non-imminent. And that sort of idea probably featured more heavily than the question of peaceful alternatives. So it depends what other factors are at play um, that, that will determine state responses. And obviously they're very mixed state responses if you read the UN Security Council deliberations on these types of incidents. So all I'm saying is that it's difficult to find a coherent body of state practice that says states must prove that they have exhausted or at least pursuing alternatives to force. It's really rare that states say that. In fact, the US did say that in the Osiris clear reactor example, but it's rare that states say that that is their only, or that is the only fact on which they base their particular stance. Right. But I would just flag, I mean, there's been some interesting scholarship recently, right, on, on the significance and how one should interpret silence in the face of what might be quite clearly unjustifiable uses of force. And to dwell on this point for a moment, you rely for state practice on cases sometimes, like the, the killing of General Soleimani or, or the, you know, even the Gulf of Tonkin incident or the invasion of Grenada and the invasion of Panama. And these are instances which a lot of scholars would, would find problematic in the sense that leaving the Gulf of Tonkin aside, but the other three examples that I mentioned are arguably clear violations of the prohibition on use of force, not justifiable uses of force, mm -hmm. and therefore what is the precedential value in drawing the, the explanations made in justification of that as being sort of reflective or probative of state practice? Yeah, it's a good question. And I sort of struggled with this because there are any number of examples of called incidents of, of self-defense. These are situations either where states have claimed the right of self-defense or whether or not that's justified or not. So there, so there are as there any number of incidents where, which I think are highly problematic. So we might talk about you know, the American bombing of uh, Baghdad's intelligence services in response to the attempted assassination of George right. W. I'm sorry, George W. his father clearly an unlawful enterprise after the event and one off and so on and so forth. But the reason I refer to these incidents is because they are they, they reveal how certain states justify their actions and in many ways how they see these parameters, these requirements to work. So for example, in the missile strike on the intelligence headquarters in Baghdad, for example, states didn't raise, for example, that there was a delay. So this goes to the immediacy. I think it's in my immediacy section. In fact, I think France congratulated um, the USA on taking the matter to the own Security Council so quickly. But in fact, there was a delay of several weeks, if I remember. Also, going back to our, our discussion on alternative alternatives to force, they were not raised, right? So clearly there was space. There was time to consider alternatives, but it was not raised in state responses. So what I've tried to do is engage with what states see as legally required in particular circumstances, even if those justifications are highly dubious, right? 
because they are state articulations on the USAD bellum. Right. But this, this gets us back to it and we don't really have time to unpack it, but I mean, this gets us back to this question of, well, what significance should we place on silence? Is silence acquiescence or is yeah. you know, failure to state an objection or the particular basis for objection meaningful in the sense that, oh, well, then therefore that wasn't an objection. And, and I'm not sure, sure that's the right inference to be drawn. Well, listen, I agree as a general premise, we should be really careful. And again, I say this explicitly, we should be really careful about drawing any conclusions from silence. But I think there are situations, and, and the ILC has certainly referred to this, where particularly if there's been a, a long period of time in situations where states could have responded, maybe there is an obligation to states to respond. So I think Syria is a perfect example of that. Going on since 2014, 80, was it 85 states and international organizations currently involved. If other states are not coming forward and saying, well, hang on, guys, you don't have a right of self-defense in these circumstances, what should we take from that silence, given the, you know, the number of states involved, the duration, the awful things that have been going on? If other states have a very strong position on the right of self-defense in general against non-state access, the necessity or the proportionality or whatever it might be, they should come forward and articulate that. And I think that absence, that silence is important, particularly when we have organizations like the Non-Align Movement, which are being very careful of how they couch their responses, not directly criticizing the global coalition, you know, trumpeting the successes so-called against Daesh and so on and so forth. I think there is something to say there, but I, I agree with you. The general premise is we should be very careful about state silence. Okay. Well, there is much that we could unpack, but let's turn then to the question of eminence because you deal with it quite substantially in this chapter on, and in this section of the chapter on necessity under general necessity. And we need not go down the rabbit hole of whether anticipatory self-defense is permissible. Tom Rouse and others have, have done that. And, and you deal with it in, in some detail in the chapter, but why don't we just fast forward through that to the agreement for the sake of argument that anticipatory self-defense may be permissible as a matter of Lex Lada. But then the question is, so what does imminence mean? What is an imminent armed attack? And, and you point out that in the context of necessity, one has to distinguish between imminent armed attacks, ongoing armed attacks, and fully completed armed attacks for purposes of dealing with necessity. And so in that context, you delve into imminence. So let's talk a little bit about imminence and how you understand it here and, and your conclusion that the way in which the Bethlehem principles and other Western countries have dealt with imminence in the context of the unwilling or unable doctrine tends to conflate imminence or uses imminence as a proxy for general necessity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I do have a section of in, the, in one chapter dealing with imminence and sorry to plug my work again, but I've taken that idea and written a whole quite extensive article on the topic of imminence, which was published last year, again, in the journal on the use of force. I tend to like that journal by books to it, which is that I think it's sort of 22, 23,000 words on imminence. So it, there's a lot that we could say about imminence. But what I try and do in that chapter is from, first off, from the perspective of general necessity, I say that there is a, a bigger focus on general necessity in respect of anticipatory self-defense. So where there is the threat of a use of force in the, in the future, obviously there is a bigger emphasis in those circumstances on states having recourse to, all, to peaceful alternatives, whether that be the UN Security Council, whether it be diplomacy, whether it be whatever it may be. So as I say, all peaceful alternatives are much more important. And the question is, it sort of boils down into whether there is a window of opportunity to explore these alternatives or whether 
the right of self-defense is triggered and necessity arises in those, so in those circumstances. Now, what I say in the chapter is that it partly comes down to what we understand imminence to mean. Imminence is sometimes referred to or often referred to in sort of an orthodox way of something being impending or the armed attack being impending. And often the Caroline incident is referred to to justify that. Although, of course, the Caroline incident doesn't refer to imminent armed attacks at all. And it's probably actually an example of an ongoing armed attack. But putting that to one side, it's often used to justify or to, to explain this idea. But what I say is that, that when we're thinking about imminence, it potentially at least might not just be a question of the timing of a future armed attack when we're thinking about whether a defensive response is necessary. So actually there is very little sort of state engagement and really scholarship on the meaning of imminence. There is some out there. But a number of scholars in recent years, not just Bethlehem, by the way, but other scholars have said, well, imminence isn't just about the timing of the armed attack. It takes into account other factors, such as gravity, such as the likelihood of the armed attack. Yeah, so gravity, likelihood, and other contextual factors, which I argue is basically a necessity calculation. So the Bethlehem principles, which speak to this contextual understanding of imminence have been explicitly adopted by three states, the UK, the US and Australia, potentially others, although not explicitly or publicly. So the point I'm sort of making there is that this immediately raises troubling issues of the boundaries of self-defense being pushed um, and the idea of potentially bringing in preventive self-defense by the back door. So preventive self-defense is the terminology I adopt. This is the sort of Bush doctrine style of self-defense in respect of non-imminent, you know, vague, unmaterialized armed attacks. And I argue, look, this is, this is troubling. State articulations of this position are not clear. They, should, they could be much clearer. But the conflation in itself is sort of a saving grace. So I'm trying not to be sort of polemic about this, this idea and saying, well, look, if states are conflating imminence and necessity, and I think we do see that, again, in the Asarek incident, I think we see it, that almost is the good thing. So even if states are trying to push at the boundaries of what imminence is, necessity draws them back because it will always be the case that states need to establish whether there are reasonable alternatives in the circumstances to use force, right? So that's in, that's in, in a nutshell, a, a very complex argument that I go through in some detail. Yeah. So I'm, I'm much, much less forgiving and charitable when it comes to the Bethlehem principles and, and this conflation of imminence with necessity. And, and in my view, confusion of what is essentially risk, right? The likelihood of, of an attack with the gravity of the attack, which is really conceptualization of risk. And yeah. confusing that with the idea of imminence, which is a temporal component. And even if you accept that imminence may include a last clear chance, a last window of opportunity, as opposed to the imminence of the actual attack itself, it has to be a temporal component. But just to return to the, the very last thing that you said, though, I, again, I, I'm, I have this trouble that you're relying on general necessity to be this limiting factor, which I agree with entirely. And I, I take your point that so long as we stick to general necessity as being this really rock hard limiting principle. The conflation of imminence with necessity can be dealt with. But I, I return to my earlier point that, it, you know, if we weaken the requirements of general necessity by suggesting that, well, because nobody has explicitly ever 
held that a, a, a use of force in self-defense was unjustified precisely because and only because uh, they pointed to the existence of alternatives and that therefore sometimes we, we can accept that therefore the use of force in self-defense may be reasonable despite there being alternatives then we're undermining the very limiting principle that we're relying on to save self-defense in all of these other uh, contexts. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess it maybe it's a question of what our expectations are here. I mean, we're dealing with principles of customer international law. There's always going to be a lot of ambiguity. And of course, state practice is king. So we might want something to be so, but if state practice hasn't got there yet, then it will not be so, at least if we're being sort of good positivists, I guess, by looking at the, the development of customer international law. And I definitely share your concerns, but I think necessity, general necessity is ultimately a contextual question. And it is certainly a question of whether there are, are alternatives, but it is also certainly a question of the particular timing of the armed attack and other questions such as the gravity of the armed attack, maybe the relationship between the parties, the history, whether there's a, a threatened further attack coming and so on and so forth. It's not simply one um, governing factor that trumps all. So I guess, so this, this, this speaks exactly to this contextual understanding of imminence. I think what, what states are articulating there is really an understanding of necessity. Uh, and of course, it will always be based on the particular facts and the particular context. And sometimes, as I say, different elements will jump out and be the forefront. It might be peaceful alternatives one day. It might be the timing another day. It might be the gravity the day after. It might be the nature of the attacker the day after that, depending on the particular circumstances. And understandably, states sort of need that element of flexibility in order to respond to two different factual circumstances. And look, we see this in the jurisprudence as well. The, the ICJ picks up on certain elements to focus on in making its determination. So in Nicaragua, it's the timing of the American defensive response, question of immediacy. In oil platforms and, ar and armed activities, when the court is looking at necessity and proportionality, it's the nature of the target, right? So the, the court does that and states do that. So we have to engage with, as I say, the state practice and the jurisprudence that we've got. We might not like it, but that's a separate question. All right. Well, we could spend a lot more time talking about imminence. I have a thoughts of my own, but we haven't even yet gotten to specific necessity and, yeah. and the whole ball of wax of proportionality. So. Let's let's move to specific necessity, and I guess both the relationship between specific necessity and general necessity, and also the relationship between the requirement under your conceptualization of specific necessity that the targets be military targets, and therefore the relationship between that and the IHL limitation on targets being military objectives. Yeah, absolutely. So again, specific necessity, whilst it's my taxonomy, it's something, as I said, I do see in state practice and the jurisprudence um, and also in some scholarship. Um, scholars such as, you know, Tom Reese and others have, have referred to this extra targeting element, although some scholars do refer to it as a proportionality requirement, which I reject for various reasons, but maybe that's another tangent. But essentially, specific necessity, as I say, make sure that the object of the defensive force serves a defensive purpose. So obviously in situations where a state can point to target and say it's military and it relates to the armed attack, in those circumstances, it's much easier for that state to, to justify and explain the targeting of that individual target. So again, because of the nature of necessity being a customary requirement, we're not dealing with the same detailed rules as we would be in IHL, which is obviously going to be the primary go-to 
when we're thinking about targeting. But what I argue is that from a USAD Bellum perspective, we're effectively overlaying onto the IHL requirements an additional layer of requirements. So what do I mean by that? I mean that from a specific necessity point of view, the object being targeted must be military, military in nature. So we see reference to this particularly in the oil platform case, for example. So I think I argue that's probably broadly in line with the idea of a military objective from IHL. But of course, because it's custom, we don't have that sort of level of specificity. So compliance with IHL definition or, or the IHL targeting requirements is necessary, but it's not sufficient because from a USAID Bellum perspective, there is the additional requirement that yes, the target must be military, but it must also be connected to the armed attack. So that is the USAID Bellum requirement because the USAID Bellum is a temporary emergency response. It is not a justification for permanent war footing or to deal with perceived security interests or long-term security interests. So as I say, if you're in a situation of self-defense, you respond to the armed attack. And if you're going beyond that, why are you doing that? Interesting. So, and this of course brings us to the relationship between specific necessity and proportionality. And so maybe we can sort of use this as our segue into proportionality because as you point out, what some people think of as proportionality, you think is, or argue is properly better considered as a aspect of specific necessity. And so maybe we can just talk a little bit about that relationship and then start to unpack how you conceptualize proportionality itself. Yes, I think this sort of the, the two main things I say to confront that argument that targeting is also or is instead a proportionality requirement is, is sort of too broad, as I say. So firstly, I argue we need to think about necessity versus proportionality and simply targeting something that's non-military cannot achieve a defensive purpose, right? So we're looking at necessity first. And, and also when we look at proportionality, again, if we look at state practice, if we look at the jurisprudence, if we look at the majority of scholarship, proportionality doesn't look at those micro decision-making elements. Proportionality looks at the big picture, the, the overall defensive response. So what it's looking at is the outcome of individual targeting decisions, not the minutiae, not the minutiae of each individual targeting decision. It's looking at the overall defensive picture, essentially to see if the response was excessive. Did it go too far to achieve its defensive purpose? So I think conceptually, proportionality is distinct from both general necessity and specific necessity. If you like, it's doing a, a separate job, a different job in the USAD Bellum and conditioning the right of self-defense. All right. So that brings us then to proportionality itself. And you, you make the argument that it's actually in many ways more complex than necessity, although we've just spent 45 minutes talking about <laughs> necessity. So, and. And, and in working your way into it, right, you say there are the, obviously there are two variables that are at play in proportionality. Something is in proportion to something else. And the, the difficulty is in the proportionate to what question. Yeah. And you, you suggest that there's both a quantitative and a teleological conception of proportionality. So perhaps we can just start with an explanation of the difference between the two and which of the two you think, or actually as we'll get to the blending of the two, you think is the better way to think about proportionality. Yeah, absolutely. So quantitative proportionality basically looks at the relationship between the armed attack and defensive response. So this is sometimes referred to as the tit for tat. 
understanding of proportionality, it's often linked to the Nicaragua case where the court said the defensive response has to be proportionate to the armed attack that preceded it. Although I argue in some length in the book that I think that's not necessarily as clear that some like to say from the Nicaragua case. I think there's different ways you can interpret that. So that's the, the first way to look at proportionality. The second way, which is often discussed either as well as or as an alternative to quantitative proportionality, as you say, is teleological proportionality. So this, this relates the defensive response to the purposes of self-defense. So the defensive response must not be proportionate to the armed attack. It must be proportionate to the purposes of self-defense, the, the defensive need. So that will either be halt, repelling, or if you accept some sort of anticipatory self-defense, preventing an armed attack. As you say, I think it's not either or. State practice is certainly mixed on this. Academic opinion is certainly mixed. But I argue that state practice and the majority of academic opinion favors the teleological interpretation of proportionality. For a number of reasons, because I think the quantitative understanding of proportionality just does not make sense. And it's certainly not a feature, or at least a majority feature of state practice. States don't tend to say that there's, an, there's a need to mirror their defensive force to the armed attack, you know, precisely, exactly. Although it's sometimes referred to in state practice, it's not the majority of state practice. So I, I think where I come out, or I do come out, is that um, we're not looking for an exact balance between defense and attack. There's certainly some leeway, some flexibility that states adopt in order that they can fulfill a defensive purpose and defend themselves effectively. That said, I do say there must be some rational connection between the armed attack and the self-defense. Clearly, if a state demonstrates manifest asymmetry, that will call into question whether a defensive purpose is being pursued. So there is some rational connection. What we're looking for is basically a, a response that must be scaled to affect the essential purpose of self-defense. And beyond that, we're into a risk in characterization of, you know, punitive measures and lawful reprisals. And I, and I argue that, or I say that the, the clearest indicator of that disproportionate or excessive response is the extent of civilian harm. I then go beyond that, which I'm happy to talk about, but I'm happy to pause if you have questions on what I've said so far. Well, yeah. So one of the things that I think comes out in, in reading the chapter is that at times one thinks that perhaps other scholars or spokespersons for governments have, have lost sight of the, the nature of the armed attack, right? So if one thinks of the quantitative approach and you say, well, the, the response has to be proportionate to the armed attack and, and saying that you mean the armed attack that has already occurred as though somehow it is completed. And of course, if it were completed and there was no threat of, of further armed attacks, well, then there wouldn't be a right of self-defense at all, right? Exactly. And so... It's, it's a mistake to be measuring proportionality to only the armed attack that has occurred without expecting that there's going to be a continuation of ongoing armed attacks. That's but, exactly right. I think that's one of the limitations of the quantitative view of proportionality, which I think is why on the whole states and scholars don't accept it as, as the only way of measuring the proportionality. Well, perhaps, but then, I mean, one could say you're, you're still taking the quantitative approach, but actually measuring not just the scale and effect of the armed attack that has occurred, but the scale and effect of the armed attacks that are expected that will be ongoing if defensive action isn't taken. And so maybe this speaks to your blended version, but I guess this then leads me to the question of if we're taking this blended view, 
and, and but with more of sort of an emphasis on the teleological and therefore the defensive purpose. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you articulate the the lines, right, and the limiting lines of this principle in saying that no force up to this point is indeed proportionate and is consistent with the defensive purpose in light of the expected ongoing armed attacks or the scale and effect of the ongoing armed attacks. But beyond that, you're just getting into trying to reestablish your deterrence or, as you say, getting into retribution, reprisal, mowing the lawn, as has been famously used in, in the context of the Israeli-Gaza conflicts. How do we use proportionality in a meaningful way to distinguish between what was consistent with the defensive purpose and what is going beyond that? Yeah, I think the short answer is it's incredibly difficult because proportionality is not this sort of hard and fast rule. Again, it's very contextual, very fact-driven. And at the end of the day, it will be determined well, whilst I think the on, there's a requirement of ongoing monitoring, at the end of the day, it will be determined post facto, right? Either by, by states, potentially a court, that's very unlikely. We would hope the UN Security Council, but again, doesn't happen as often as we might like. And essentially, again, unfortunately, we are sort of boiling it down to a reasonableness test, albeit within certain parameters. So what I try and do in the book is, and I have a separate sort of section on this, is setting out how we might assess proportionality. So what are the factors that we should look at? And I highlight in particular civilian harm. That's a very clear, consistent indicator from states on both proportionality and disproportionality. So death, but also harm to civilian in infrastructure. And then I look at other potential factors. So this is where I sort of get uh, a situation or, or a view on proportionality, which perhaps goes beyond, or is perhaps potentially novel, potentially controversial to say that it's not just about the defensive purpose, other factors come into play, and in particular, legally protected third-party rights. So we're balancing your right of self-defense principally against a defensive purpose, which might go beyond and be excessive to the armed attacks, but also looking at the effects of that self-defense on issues such as international peace and security, on neutral rights, on host states, if we're looking at non-state actors, self-defense, so there is an overall of balancing of interests, if you like, which is sort of a way that state responsibility and countermeasures looks like when we think about Article 25. So I sort of import that idea or refer to that idea to, have, to, to suggest this overall balancing of interests, because it's clear that states can't prioritize their right of self-defense over all other rights and pursue it at any cost. That is clearly not the case. I think there are particular factors that we can pin down in assessing whether or not states, state responses are excessive or disproportionate, but it's difficult because particularly with proportionality, interpreting state practice is tricky because states often don't talk about youth ad bellum proportionality as opposed to IHL proportionality. Sometimes those terms are referred to interchangeably. So interpreting the, the state practice is tricky. Right. And before we move to non-state actors, I'm mindful we have very little time left, but that last point, you know, states often use the term proportionality interchangeably as between the use ad bellum and use in bellow. And the media in particular, but even, even others who should know better, often confuse and conflate the proportionality from use ad bellum with proportionality in IHL. So perhaps you could just say a little bit about your analysis of the relationship between the two and how they differ. 
Yeah. So what I've tried to do, and, and I accept in the book, there's ambiguity, but what I do say is I'm assessing these claims within claims of self-defense. Okay. So with either within debates or within article 51 letters, whatever it may be. But again, once again, in the relationship between IHL and USAD Bellum proportionality, again, we're looking at different levels. So USAD Bellum proportionality is the big macro picture. It, it sort of relates to international peace and security and the relationships between states sort of at the, at the big state level. IHL proportionality is, is, is at the micro level of decision-making. It's a lot more immediate and it's looking very much at the civilian harm that might result from individual military operations on the ground. Whereas USAD Bellum proportionality is essentially looking at all of those individual decision makings and outcomes in the round. It's sort of adding them all up and sort of looking at the global view and saying, well, was this defensive response, which is made up of these individual IHL actions, if you like, or IHL compliance or non-compliant actions, was the overall defensive response excessive when we look at the defensive purpose and, as I say, these other legally protected third-party interests? Does that make sense? Yes. Well, listen, we could talk a lot more about that relationship and unpack both sides of the proportionality, right? Because I think they, you could argue that they're, they're different on both sides of the equation in proportionality in IHL and USAID Bellum. But you have an entire chapter and a long chapter on self-defense in the context of use of force against non-state actors. And we could spend an entire episode, and indeed we have other episodes that have dealt with just that issue. And we're not going to have time to do that. But you you know, very carefully go through the sort of the controversies around whether non-state actors can engage in armed attacks, whether their, their attacks constitute an armed attack uh, as understood in USAID Bellum. If we fast forward through all of that for a moment and just assume for the sake of argument that yes, indeed, non-state actors can commit armed attacks for the purposes of triggering the right of self-defense and that Article 51 authorizes at least the use of force against non-state actors in non-consenting states to the extent that the non-consenting state or host state has contributed to, or that the acts of the non-state actor can be attributed to the host state, then yes, self-defense is applicable. The big question I have, and you've alluded to this a couple of times in your comments earlier, is why should we think that the doctrine of self-defense in that context should be any different, or that the standards should be modified in any way when dealing with non-state actors in a host state when the actions of the non-state actors are attributed to the host state. Why would we think that the thresholds or standards should be any different than any other situation of the use of force and self-defense? So did you say when they are attributed or not attributed? Well, let's start with the, they are attributed. And, and then yeah, we can I'm... work our way to when it's not possible to attribute. I mean, some would argue that if, if the actions of the non-state actor can't be attributed, to, or that the, the host state is not substantially involved, to use the language of Nicaragua, in the actions yeah. of, of the non-state actor, then the use of force against the host state for the purposes of getting at the non-state actor is not justified. So let's yeah. just start with where the, the attribution is available. And where the attribution is available, so if we're looking at Article 3G definition of aggression attribution, your, your, I think the analysis, the interstate analysis, which is the sort of beginning of my book, applies directly. And I don't think there really is, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, I don't think there is any particular differentiation that we should make. The, the, the big issue, as you rightly allude to, and I know you've spoken about at length on this podcast and other, other episodes, is the issue of self-defense against non-state actors where there is no attribution from the sort of Article 3G 
standards. There's no sending, there's no substantial involvement. And that, of course, is the is the big question and, and debates such as unwilling and unable speak to this. And I talk about that in the book. I guess I'd say a few things from the perspective of general necessity and then specific necessity. And maybe if we get to proportionality, we get to it. If not, we don't. So I think in principle, as a general premise, when we're talking about defensive action on the territory of a host state, absent attribution, there is an additional layer. There are additional considerations. So necessity, general necessity, potentially, at least in theory, has a greater role to play because there is primacy in those situations on host state action against the non-state actors operating from its territory. Under the sort of general laws of customary international law to combat terrorism, to prevent its state being a source of harm, et cetera, et cetera, there is an obligation on host states to deal with this. Now, obviously, what happens in reality might be very different. And what, what, I've, what we see in state practice is what is very significant is the relationship that the non-state actors have with the host state, but also the relationship that the victim state and the host state have. So, for example, a couple of sort of main examples I speak about at length in the book is Operation Enduring Freedom, so the response after 9-11. There was clearly no, uh, or it wasn't felt that there was any obligation whatsoever to either cooperate with the Taliban or request assistance from the Taliban or in any way have anything to do with the Taliban in, in, in terms of responding to Al-Qaeda on the territory of Afghanistan. And likewise, in the anti-Daesh operations in Syria, the the nature of the Assad regime was a particular feature. I, what, is there a requirement to cooperate with this sort of murderous, barbarous regime that's sort of gassing its own civilians and so on and so forth? Well, clearly not. No states felt that they needed to do that. And, and beyond that, there was a suggestion at the time that if the UK and the US and the other allies were, were to cooperate with Assad, who initially suggested at the beginning of the war he might want to do that and they changed his mind, then what does that mean for the state responsibility or the implication of the state responsibility of those intervening states by cooperating with the murderous regime? So state responsibility for you know, encouraging breaches of IHL, maybe complicity in war crimes and so on and so forth. So as a general premise, as I say, the, the primacy on host state is, is very much there. But again, it's very contextual depending on the particular circumstances. And with non-state actors, there was certainly no suggestion that in state practice that I can see that States must somehow have this obligation to negotiate with terrorist non-state actors to find these alternative options other than maybe law enforcement activity, maybe other than taking action on its, on its own territory. So again, there's a sort of general premise, but we have to sort of get into the minutiae how it actually works in, in practice. So I guess one of the questions that flows from this then is that, isn't there a risk that if we start thinking about the doctrine of self-defense as having been somehow modified or applied differentially with somewhat different standard when we're dealing with non-state actors in non-consenting states, that that differential treatment, that weakening of the doctrine of self-defense for that specific purpose is actually going to bleed into and undermine the doctrine of self-defense more generally. And, and indeed, you know, in your treatment of general necessity in your chapter on general necessity, you spend a fair amount of time dealing with the Bethlehem principles and discussing the statements of the attorney generals of the United Kingdom and Australia as being representative of 
some some emerging state practice with respect to not just the use of force against non-state actors, but actually as somehow changing how we should think about general necessity. And you, to your point, they're conflating imminence with general necessity, but it's affecting, in your view, how we should think about the doctrine of self-defense itself. And, and so isn't there this risk that in trying to modify the doctrine of self-defense in order to deal with, admittedly, heinous terrorist organizations, we then end up lowering and weakening the, the limitations on the use of force and self-defense in interstate conduct at, at, at the risk of weakening the prohibition on the use of force and the, the limitations on international peace and security. Yeah, I think there is that danger. I get a couple of things I might say to that is, is once again in the book, I really do engage with other state responses. So I think particularly in the terrorist context or the, the, the anti-Daesh action Syria context. For example, I think the non-aligned movement response is very interesting. And I go through, as again, in some detail, other state responses, but the non-aligned movement has not been critical of global coalition action in Syria in the same way that it's been critical of Daesh action. And in fact, it welcomed victories against Daesh. And that is highly sort of problematic, but again, it's, it's, it's responses to these militarily powerful states. And the global coalition is not just NATO, it's not just the West, right? We have the Arab League in there, we have states in the global South. And as I said, these more general state responses are contributing, as you rightly say, to this sort of weakening. And I think in the non-state actor context, it's really troubling. And I think the UN Security Council here is also part of that weakening, if you like, um, because of its, it, at least its implicit endorsement of some of these activities. You know, calling for the eradication of terrorists on the territory of Iraq and Syria. Again, just to be balanced about this, I do say in the book that whilst this is highly problematic and the ability of general necessity and proportionality to monitor state behavior and limit state behavior in these circumstances is much weaker, there are a couple of saving graces. So number one, in situations like Afghanistan and in situations like Syria, they are very particular contexts. And in these both situations, we do have the UN Security Council, if you like, on behalf of the international community, saying that these terrorists are a threat to international peace and security. And in many ways, saying that there is a general necessity of self-defense against them and endorsing particular state behavior, such as eradicating terrorists in that context. So you can see that as problematic, but you can also see as the UN Security Council's role in these situations, sort of limiting their precedential value, if you like, because of that, if you like, the, the, the individual states are acting on behalf of the international community to combat terrorism. Again, highly problematic, but I, I think as a precedential value, hopefully they sort of stay where they are. The other thing that I say in the book is that I think general necessity and proportionality are really, really difficult in the non-state actor context. Again, against this background of international terrorism, which I think influences state responses. But again, I think there's much scope for specific necessity there to limit state behavior by limiting where states can direct defensive responses. And again, I have a whole section of that in the book, but I do appreciate we're running out of time. Yeah, so I think we'll perhaps end there on, on an optimistic and upbeat perspective on self-defense. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three readings to our listeners. Okay, so two I know have been recommended before, but I have to mention them, I'm afraid, for, particularly for this book and influence generally on my work. So 
First one is Tom Royce, Olivier Corton, and Alexander Hofer, the use of force and international law, a case-based approach. I think that is the Bible or one of the key go-to books that all your Sadbellum scholars should have on their desk if we're looking at incident-based approaches and custom. Absolutely. I have to mention Craig Fossey's Destroying the Caroline, the Frontier Raid that Reshaped the Right to War, because I think that is a brilliant book and again, very much feeds into the necessity and proportionality story, rightly or wrongly, but it's a brilliant book and very well written. And if you would like a non-international law recommendation, going back to me being a fantasy fiction nerd, I would very much recommend a couple of authors, Jay Kristoff and Brandon Sanderson. So Jay Kristoff, who wrote the Nevernight series, fantastic. Brandon Sanderson, who wrote the Mistborn series, again, fantastic. If you want some light reading beyond states shooting each other. Well, you're in good company. Terry Gill also gave us some fantasy novels as recommendations. So thank you very much for those. And Chris, thank you so much for making time for this. And, and congratulations again on a wonderful book. And we'll post links to the book and to, to the two articles that you mentioned, the Gravity and the Imminence articles. And we may have to have you back on to just get to the bottom of Imminence sometime. Craig, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which again is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at @jibjabpodcast for updates on the upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe and take care. <laughs>